0: Good morning. morning. Let's open class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity again to come and study and to fellowship together, and we ask that your spirit of love and truth will join us and that we can draw closer to you. In your holy name, amen. And an announcement that is kind of late because I've been traveling and busy and forgot and lots of things, but most of you probably know this, but Francesca Brewster gave birth so Miles Joseph Brewster was born at 10.40 p.m. on June 11, 7 pounds, 14 ounces, 20 and a half inches long, and both mom and baby are healthy. I uh, he received this email this week, thought I'd share it with you. Hi everyone, my wife and I joined the SDA church about eight years ago from our own personal studies. Even though we felt um, where we were was correct, we couldn't quite put our finger on something that wasn't quite right. Simple questions that couldn't be answered or answers that made no sense. Since discovering common reason, it's now starting to fall more in place and make sense for us. As before, our idea of a God of love was at times in conflict with what was being taught and preached. We are more settled now and encouraged. Kindest regards and God's blessing. That's from Australia. So, just to let uh, thank all of you here and, uh, and uh, online that support us, we get emails like this from all over the world. People are watching, and this message is reaching and changing lives. Today we're doing lesson three in the uh, lesson study, the book of Acts, and the title is Life in the Early Church. Life in the Early Church. Now, have you ever heard people in church talk about wanting to get back to basics, wanting to practice Christianity like the early church? Have you ever heard that? Do you think we as Christians today, in any denomination, practice church like the early church did? (laughs) No. What do you think has a bigger impact on how we as Christians do church today? The Bible and the early church practices as recorded in Scripture or paganism? Paganism. This is a book I'm going to share some things out of with you today. It's called Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola and George Barna. They start out in the book on page 4 or 5 saying the following. As Christians, we are taught by our leaders to believe certain ideas and behave in certain ways. We are also encouraged to read our Bibles, but we are conditioned to read the Bible with the lens handed to us by the Christian tradition to which we belong. We are taught to obey our denomination and never challenge what it teaches. Strikingly, contemporary church thought and practice have been influenced far more by post biblical historical events than by the New Testament imperatives and examples. Yet most Christians are not conscious of the influence. Nor are they aware that it has created a slew of cherished, calcified, humanly devised traditions, all of which are routinely passed off to us as Christian. Hmm. Do you agree? Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we will jump immediately in on one of these human traditions that was passed off as Christian and which is post-biblical and for which most Christians never question. We jump on it instantly. And what is it? Sunday as a Christian day of worship. And since that issue has been explored, written about, debated, researched, documented extensively, we are not going to focus on that tradition today. As all scholars from every theological background and every denomination agree that Sunday as a Christian day of worship originated after the first century. So, everybody, there's no dispute about that. So let's focus on other elements of contemporary church that also find their roots not in the Bible, but in human and pagan tradition. Can you think of any others?
1: That God's mad, and he needs to be appeased, and he's going to punish the wicked.
0: Okay, God. God, the God concept, the judgment. The lesson points out that the early church Christians sold their possessions in order to provide for each other and help spread the gospel. I think this is true. Early church did this. Is this idea, if we, if we take that idea, they sold their possessions to help each other communally and to help spread the gospel. If that's true, does it suggest anything they were not doing or didn't possess or have? Did the early church have building projects, temples, cathedrals, and places of worship? No. This is Philip Schaff, 19th century American church historian. He wrote the following. That the Christians of the apostolic age erected special houses of worship is out of the question. As the Savior of the world was born in a stable and ascended to heaven from a mountain, so his apostles and their successors down to the third century preached in the streets, the markets, on mountains, in ships, sepulchres, eaves, and deserts, and in the homes of of their converts. But how many thousands of costly churches and chapels have since been built and are constantly being built at all, in all parts of the world to honor the crucified Redeemer, who in all days of his humiliation had no place to rest his own head? Do you think the work of spreading the gospel has been helped or hindered by the billions or trillions spent on erecting cathedrals, chapels, and churches? We're we're really kind of questioning this idea, what did the early church consider the church to be?
2: Yes? Many places around the world, they live in very small homes, huts and other things, where you can't have a gathering. So they gather under trees and in fields, and, and there's rain and wind and storm, and so it helps them a lot to have a structure where they can meet that has a roof, and also to have a school there.
0: Yeah, so I, I put in the notes, there, this is not suggesting there should not be the building of various buildings for functional purposes, hospitals, schools, publishing houses, places to gather for ceremonies and weddings. and pro- It's not suggesting that at all. The question is, has the building been for f- the building that Christianity has done throughout the years primarily been for functional purposes to help spread the gospel, or for extravagant grand follow what i 'm saying here? if, if you 're not sure, just just travel through Europe and look and yep. do a cathedral tour.
2: <laughs> <laughs> do
0: a cathedral tour in Europe. It will blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. And how were those cathedrals built? Where did the funds come from? The indulgences. <clears throat> the indulgences, which were were what?
2: Paying ahead of time to kind of cover for what you're going to do badly in the
0: future, or, or 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 paying. Yes, yes, or get loved ones out of it. get loved ones out of purgatory, right? Or the actual church. Cathedral was the indulgence. Somebody has committed some sin, and the church said, "Well, you're a wealthy person. You're a king. You're a duke. You're uh, 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 somebody. You build the church, a cathedral, and we'll erase your sin."
3: Or to secure a
0: position. Or to yes, or to secure a position or power. Um, so, do you think this this type of building, not the functional building where we yeah, well, there's there, there's a place for that, and we all I think understand that. But is that how the early church approached it? Well, SDA should, should, because of our understanding of the heavenly sanctuary and message, should be at the forefront of this truth. This is out of Barnes and Viola's book, page 10. Ancient Judaism was centered on three elements, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. When Jesus came, he ended all three, fulfilling them in himself. He is the temple who embodies the new and living house made of living stones without hands. He is the priest who has established a new priesthood and he is the perfect finished sacrifice. Consequently, the temple, the professional priesthood and the sacrifices of Judaism all passed away with the coming of Jesus Christ. Christ is the fulfillment and reality of it all. Do you agree or disagree? Yes. Then consider the next paragraph. In Greco-Roman paganism, these three elements were also present. Pagans had their temples, their priests, and their sacrifices. It was only the Christians who did away with all of these elements. It can be rightly said that Christianity was the first non-temple-based religion ever to emerge. In the minds of the early Christians, the people, not the architecture, constituted a sacred space. The early Christians understood that they themselves, corporately, were the temple of God, and the house of God. Do you agree or disagree? Does this shed any light on the 2300 day prophecy? 2300 years and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Can you see how Satan would want people to forget that in Christianity the temple is made out of people and want them to think it's a building, it's a piece of architecture? then even when the prophecy about the cleansing of the ta- sanctuary is discovered, that people would misapply it and misunderstand its meaning to be something about inanimate materials and bricks and mortar and gold and books and records and never really consider the cleansing of the sanctuaries, the cleansing of their own heart and mind. I have read many times here in the past, a quote from Ellen White about how she talks about How the temple in heaven is not to be made out of dead substance, but living souls. You've you've heard that quote. I've probably read it ten times in here if I've read it once. I'm not going to read it again. (laughs) Because I've read it many times. But I'm going to read a different quotation that I don't think I've ever read in here before. Consider this quotation. It's out of Manuscript Releases, Volume 2. Your faculties are separate and distinct, yet each is dependent for its success on the other. So each day God works with his building, stroke upon stroke... To perfect the structure, which thus grows into a holy temple for the Lord. One stone mislaid affects the whole building. This figure represents human character, which is to be wrought upon point by point. There is not to be a flaw in it, for it is the Lord's building. Every stone must be perfectly laid that it may endure the pressure placed upon it. God warns you and, ev- and every worker to take heed how you build, so that your building may bear the test of storm and tempest because it is riveted on the eternal rock. Take heed how you build. Every hour may, may be spent in placing the stone on sure foundation ready for the day of test and revelation. When we shall see, just as we, are. We, when we shall be seen just as we are. Pause. I'm going to pause in the middle of this quote. What do you think this is talking about? The day of test and revelation where we shall be seen just as we are. You think it's talking about the eternal judgment? Or when you find yourself in that position in which your true character comes out and you expose yourself, are you loyal or are you disloyal? Are you honest or you cheat? Are you kind or are you cruel? You you know what I'm talking about. Keep on with the quote. This warning God presents to me as as essential in your case. He loves you with a love that is immeasurable. He loves your brethren in the faith, and he works with them to the same end that he works with you. His church upon the earth is to assume divine proportions before the world before the world as a temple composed of living stones every stone emitting light this building is to be the light of the world a city set on a hill which cannot be hid it is composed of stones laid close together stones fitting stone fitting to stone making a solid building all the stones are not of the same form or shape some are large some are small but each has its own crevice to fill and the value of each stone is determined by the light it reflects to the world. This is God's plan, and he would have all who profess to believe his word fill their respective places in that regard. Grand work for this time. The Lord's church is composed of his living, working agencies who derive their power to act from the, capital A, author and finisher of their faith. The great work resting upon God's individual workers is to be carried forward in symmetrical harmony. Do we view, like the early church, that God's church, God's temple, God's sanctuary is not an architecture, it is made out of living beings, it's us. Do we have that clarity? I don't think we do automatically, I don't think that's the default mode that when we think of the sanctuary, we default and think of each other.
2: Do we? Yes. Yes. Well, I think Proverbs 24 is good because it's talking about the, the house that is you. Starting with verse uh, 3. By wisdom, a house is built. Through understanding, it's established. And through knowledge, its rooms are filled with, with uh, beautiful treasures. A wise man has great power. A man of knowledge increases strength. For waging war, you need guidance. For victory, many advisors. So, uh, to me, that's... Speaking of internal treasure, some people have come here and said, oh, you know, you're so in-depth, you know, you're thinking of things so deeply, why not just talk about easy things? And to me, this is why we come here, because we want our internal rooms filled with rare and beautiful treasures.
0: Well said, well said. So do we understand that the cleansing of the sanctuary is not happening in books in heaven, but in hearts and minds of people? Do we realize that sin is not a race out of record books, but out of hearts, minds, and characters of people? Do we realize that those who present the message of God's temple and heavenly sanctuary as being a physical building in heaven made out of non-living matter and investigative judgment are going through record books and applying uh, blood to to, uh, ledger entries are promoting paganism. They're not promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ or the third angel's message. This is why the work has not been finished. This is why we're stuck here, why there's a delay. Are we practicing Christianity as the early church did? We just took a brief look at the modern buildings versus the true temple made out of living souls and how the mission of the true church is undermined by diverting resources to extravagant structures. This is not, again, to say that organizations shouldn't have buildings for, for public meetings, health care, publishing, community service, education centers, and so forth, but that the, they should be functional primarily, not pride and ego driven for extravagance. There's a difference, isn't there? Are there other elements we accept as orthodoxy today that are not biblical and have their origins in paganism? How about this one? The paid pastor and clergy. Now
3: you're going from preaching to medicine.
0: <laughs> How about this one? Let me, let me say it this way. The paid pastor and clergy having, as some, having some hierarchical authority and holding an appointed position over the rest of the church membership. Well, let's talk about the role of pastor. The role of pastor in the New Testament is it's, it's talked about. Pastor is one of the things talked about. But if you look at the New Testament, the pastor in the New Testament was merely a member with no more authority than anyone else who arose organically from the body to minister and help foster spiritual growth in the community of believers. The role of pastor today is instead that of a pagan priest, an office set apart and instilled with arbitrary authority all too often to rule over members of the church. It was early in the second century when the the apostles and the first missionary evangelists were dying off and gone that these pagan ideas of the pastoral authority began to enter the church. Ignatius of Antioch, This is uh, out of Pagan Christianity, page 110. Ignatius of Antioch was instrumental in this shift. He was the first figure in church history to take a step down the slippery slope toward the single leader in the church. We can trace the origin of the contemporary pastor and church hierarchy to him. Ignatius elevated one of the elders in uh, in each church above all the others. The elevated elder was was now called the bishop. All the responsibilities that belonged to the college of elders were exercised by the bishop. In AD 107, Ignatius wrote a, a series of letters on his way to be martyred in Rome. Six out of seven of those letters strike the same chord. They exalt the authority and importance of the bishop's office. According to Ignatius, the bishop had ultimate power and should be obeyed absolutely. Consider the following excerpts from his letters. This is quote now, quote from Ignatius. Plainly, therefore, we ought to regard the bishop as the Lord himself. All of you follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows the Father. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there will be people. There the people will be, as even were where Jesus may be. It is not lawful apart from the bishop to either baptize or to hold a love feast. But whatever he shall approve, it is well pleasing also to God. Do you think now? I'm, I'm moving on. This, the quote's over. Do you think we have any of these ideas? infecting Christianity today. Yes. Including the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yes. A few years ago when I had an opportunity to discuss what we teach in here with some of the pastoral leadership in this community, one of the pastors actually said to me regarding the senior pastor of, of the church, you can't question what he says because he's the Lord's anointed. You need to accept what he says. That's what very close to a quote, but that was the idea communicated to me that who was I, a member of the church, to question the senior pastor, the Lord's anointed? Do you see that? Di- we call that diagnostic. Yeah. That diagnoses or exposes the mindset of the person who said it. And that diagnosis, an imperialistic, authoritarian view of church leadership, which doesn't come out of the scripture. It comes out of paganism. Do we believe only the Ordained pastors can baptize, conduct weddings, lead the communion service, be in leadership and hold office in the church, be the pastor of a church. Do we believe that?
2: Long there,
0: <laughs> we haven't even gotten to that part yet. Yes, regardless of their gender. But yes, if you believe any of that, that's not coming out of the early church. It's not coming out of scripture. It's coming out of paganism. I'm going to read you another quote here in a second. Yes. It
3: would be tremendous
1: benefit to a pastor who is truly pastoral, who is there for the good of the people, to study deeply, to explore truth together, with an open mind to, to seek out God, and in a church body in which there is enough uh, size to have that as a paid position so that he can truly dedicate the time to pastoring the flock, he or she can pastor the flock, then I think that there can be potentially a great benefit in that.
0: Do you see how gracious you are? See how gracious she is? She is, she is really trying really hard to, to massage the two together very nicely. But that's not what we're, we're, we're making the distinction of. Not that they're getting paid isn't the, is the primary issue. It's the fact that they're appointed by an authority rather than arising organically. You're describing somebody who rises up with those abilities, who's a great got great skills. The Lord has blessed them with those talents, and then the community recognizes that and say, you know what, we we as a community want you to do this full time, and we want to support you so you can do it full time. That's actually very scriptural. That is not how it happens today. Okay. In fact, we'll go into the next question which is the question of ordination itself. Is ordination biblical or does it come from paganism? In the biblical method, leadership arose organically from the obvious gifting of the Holy Spirit as people with the gifts took it upon themselves to be servant leaders. So those with the gift of healing became healers. Those with the gift of hospitality invited people to those homes. Those with the gift of teaching started teaching and people gathered to listen to their teaching because they were learning from them. Uh, thus, there was no board. Council, conference, committee that gathered to nominate and select people for these offices. The only exception, one person, when they decided they wanted to replace Judas, they had a meeting and they cast lots. But even that did not set up a procedure for apost- apostolic selection because Paul was selected organically by the Holy Spirit without a committee vote to be an apostle. In the early church, there was no such thing as ordination as in placing someone in office by a person or a committee. Elders were acknowledged as leaders uh, by the apostles in Galatia, Acts 14.23, Ephesus, 1 Timothy 3.1, Crete, Titus 1.5. The word translated in the King James here is ordain, but these passages do not mean the placing in office by the apostles. They were already in office and functioning in that role when the apostles came around. And it merely meant the acknowledgement by the apostles that they were the pastor and giving their personal blessing to them in their role. There's a difference. It was only later that ordination shifted and became an installation and granting of authority and giving special status of elevating a person above others in the church. That came later. This is uh, from Pagan Christianity 125. From where did the Christians get their pattern of ordination? They patterned their ordination ceremony after the Roman custom of appointing men to civil office. The entire process, down to the very words, came straight from the Roman civic world. By the 4th century, the terms used for appointment to Roman office and for church ordination became synonymous. When Constantine made Christianity the religion of choice, church leadership structure were buttressed by political sanction. The forms of the Old Testament priesthood were combined with the Greek hierarchy. Sadly, the church was secure in its new form, just as it is today. Christian ordination then came to be understood as that which constitutes the essential difference between clergy and laity. Is it biblical? This idea of an authority, a group, someone in power, pope, priest, a committee, a board, a conference office holding the authority to determine and grant somebody this elevated status. Is that biblical? Yes. I just
3: always assume in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus took the twelve up onto the top of the mountain. He laid his hands on them. And it, it says, like he said in the King James, he ordained them to go out to preach. I just assume that's what i was talking about.
0: So is there a difference now? Okay. Is there a difference between God the Son god the father and god the holy spirit selecting people for mission and purpose and breathing on them the power of the spirit pouring upon them the gifts of the spirit to enable and ennoble them for the task Is there a difference in god doing that than a human being saying i have the authority to put my hands on you and ordain you and elevate you now above everyone else for this position are those the same So yeah, Jesus did that. And who is he? God the Son. And the Holy Spirit gifted people specifically and called people. And we find in the Old Testament, God called his spokespersons and empowered them and enabled them to tasks and purposes. And he's still doing that today. My suggestion is, though, if we follow the biblical model, we actually look for the work of the Spirit in the lives of people, gifting and ennobling, which are evidenced by the fruits that they bear over time. And the abilities they have, rather than looking for an, a human authority conference group to get together in a committee and decide, this person is the person, and we're going to put them in authority over everyone else. Just a thought.
2: Because in the Old Testament, you have the Levites. Again, God's saying, this group isn't going to really have an inheritance. I'm their inheritance. And so the offerings you brought are the, one, are the things that sustain the Levites.
0: And so in the biblical model... After Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, who now, according to Scripture, are the priesthood? Believers. believers. We're the priesthood of believers. And of course, according to even in the Old Testament, God's original plan was that, who were to be the priests? Just the Levites? Or I will make you a nation of priests. The whole nation were to be his priests and representatives, not just the Levites.
1: Yes? I I still see some benefit in in organization as long as mission and heart stay true and point north with God as the leader.
0: So are you hearing me say that we shouldn't have organization? Because I didn't say that. Right. I never said that. (laughs) I didn't say that at all. I think organization is very, very helpful in working together, pooling resources, uh, having common mission. Oh, absolutely. They had organization in the early church. They had offerings. They came together. They had a group. They made certain decisions. But ordination was not one of them, yes. How does the Jerusalem Council
3: fit into it? I understand what you're saying, but how does it come together?
0: So what did the Jerusalem Council do? Did the Jerusalem Council uh, uh, decide who was going to be the various leaders of all the different little groups, Ephesus and Thessalonica and all this? They didn't. They didn't make those decisions.
3: How does the church recognize someone who has the gifts, then, I guess is what I'm saying. You say,
0: organically, you're the teacher. Well, this is exactly how the Adventist church was originally set up, and how we have devolved and been infected. The Adventist church was set up that local congregations held the authority for membership and for uh, those decisions to be made on the local level based on the gifts that we experience because we know each other, we work with each other, we, we share each other's burdens, and so it becomes evident when we are in the lives of each other who is really walking and journeying and who's not, and that's how it was supposed to be decided in the Adventist church. However, what's happened over the last, no, I don't know, you you tell me how many years, but there's been this this slow transition away from local authority to centralized authority with a hierarchical down where we have a committee at the top or a president at the top who decides what's right for everyone else and then is going to use authoritarian measures to ensure that that is carried out. We We have doctrine police, thought police. Okay, rules, the ordination, for instance, the right thing for the women ordination question, if you follow the biblical model, would have been exactly what was proposed by the people who proposed it, which was that each local group should make the decision for themselves. That's the biblical model. But instead, we have an authoritarian system where people in authority want to rule over and coerce the conscience of other people. This is not the biblical model. It's not the way the Adventist church was set up. And regarding the women's ordination question, I'm not going to go down that trail at the moment, but just remember how we decided to deal with the racial issue in this country, which was clearly not biblical. We set up separate conferences based on race to help promote the gospel because of the hardness of human hearts and the bigotry primarily of the white population who wouldn't tolerate black evangelists in their church. And so we set up separate conferences. Why did we do that? Because it's a biblical thing to separate on race? Of course it's not. Nobody agrees it is. Why do we do it? Because of the need of the local people. And this is the issue when it comes to women's ordination. Why do we not have women's ordination around the world? Because God doesn't want it or because of the hardness of men's hearts? And I say men, I mean male. <laughs> male hearts. <laughs> Who don't want a woman to have any authority over them. And I don't mean the authority of office. I mean the authority of truth. They don't want to hear it. So I will keep going now with this, this question here. Did the Reformation, the question of ordination, which we, I, I believe, fairly clearly in history that is not this idea of a committee or a person choosing and giving authority to elevate a person above everybody else with some type of power. That's not biblical. Did, this, did the Reformation change this idea of ordination? It did not. Martin Luther held that those who preach needed to be specially trained and ordained by the system. And Protestant Christianity continues this. So this then brings us to the next element of potential paganism within Christianity. The weekly sermon. (laughs) Is the weekly sermon biblical? Contrast today's sermons with what we find in the Bible. And I'm going to show you the contrast. God's spokesperson who absolutely stood up and gave public messages. Peter on the day of Pentecost, for instance. But today's sermons... Notice, regularly scheduled events, delivered typically by the same person, delivered to a passive audience, monologue, cult, and it's a cultivated form of professional speech with a predetermined structure that they have to basically go through. They're taught this in seminary, how to do these types of presentations. Bible preaching, and you'll look through Old and New Testament, was sporadic. As occasions arose, an opportunity presented itself, and that they would, they would give a message, Addressed special needs of the situation or circumstances, and was impromptu without a predetermined structure, and most often included interruptions and interaction with the audience. Kind of like we're doing in here. The modern form of weekly sermonizing didn't arise in Christianity until the late second century. That's not how they did church in the New Testament. And you can see this in the book of Acts. They sat around in homes, they're having dialogue back and forth. So, where did the modern sermon arise? Yes.
3: Did they not get it from looking for what, you know, admins typically quote this all the time. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as his custom was, and he stood up for it to read.
0: So, no, that's not where they get it. We're going to come to that in just a moment. The Sabbath question uh, from the lesson. The modern sermon came from the sophists, who were professional speakers who required payment to speak to a passive audience. This is out of the same book, page 89. The sophists were expert debaters. They were masters of using emotional appeals, physical appearance, and clever language to sell their arguments. In time, the style, form, and oratorial skills um, of the sophists became more prized than their accuracy. Is is sophist so P-H-I-S-T? Yes. Okay, <laughs> we know what that what root Sophistry, yeah. We know where that comes from. Yep, sophist. <laughs> yes, sophistry. These are the sophists. These are professional speakers, And notice, their style, form, and oratorial skills became more prized than their accuracy. Early attorneys. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember the Bible talking about putting speakers that will itch their e- itching ears before them? Think about today. Who gets the senior leadership role in many of the megachurches? Is it people who have the clearest ability to present truth or the people who are the most dynamic speaker? Yeah. Who can keep them entertained? This spawned a class of men who became masters of fine phrases. The truths they preach were abstract rather than truths that were practiced in their own lives. Do as I say, not what I do, type thing. The sophists identified themselves by the special clothing they wore. Some had fixed residences where they gave regular sermons to the same audience. How did the Greek, ser- the Greek sermon find its way into the Christian church? About the third century, a vacuum was created when the mutual ministry faded from the body of Christ. That means the ministry of the community working together to benefit each other was fading in the third century. To fill their absence, the clergy began to emerge. Open meetings began to die out, and church gatherings became more and more liturgical. As a hierarchical structure began to take root, the idea of a religious specialist emerged. In the face of these changes, the functioning Christians had trouble fitting into the evolving ecclesiastical structure. There was no place for them to exercise their gifts. By the 4th century, the church had become fully institutionalized. There's a lot more in the book about many, many more pagan traditions that have come in. Yes.
3: Something that also contributed to that also is the the disfavor of the Jewish culture in which it was originally founded. As they got as the Jewish was progressively more persecuted attendance at a synagogue or something else that had to do with Jewish was also disfavored.
0: Which would have portended more towards the home type of church style rather than the than the, than the central meetings. So, yes?
2: What I've found personally is preachers today, they're not called by God, they're paid for by man. And that, to me, that's the difference. I've had a dozen many preachers tell me. In a court situation where he first stood up and after the organization and the conference got involved, told him you can't help them when we can't pay you. Mm-hmm. And it's disturbing.
0: So you've suggested the possibility that sometimes pastors that have a heart to maybe move their ministry in a certain direction or involve themselves in certain outreaches might be restricted by an organization that threatens to terminate their employment if they do those activities. You've suggested that could be happening?
2: To me, they're not called by God. They're paid for by me.
0: Um, has anyone else ever you know, heard struggles of individuals employed by the system who's convicted by the Spirit to maybe preach a certain message or do a certain ministry or reach out in the community in a certain way? And, and as they begin to go that direction, their organization steps in and, and threatens their job or even does end their job if they won't comply to the organizational directives. That, again, is not biblical. That's authoritarian. The Bible didn't work that way. But yes, so this is part of the problem, again, where it should be local control and see if they worked for the actual institution, uh, the, what you suggested, organically rising up, the organic little community together says, we value, value what you're doing, we want to support you, provide you a house, food, a little stipend, because we love what you're doing, and we want you to continue this ministry in and, and, and our community, then as long as that, there, there's harmony in that group, then that person's ministry is not threatened. When it goes to an organizational hierarchy, though, and the higher and bigger the organization gets, then the more authoritarian it becomes and the more restrictive it becomes in the work of the Spirit in each individual group. Am I right or wrong here? They yes. see themselves
2: as purging the uh, errors.
0: Oh. Yeah. So did those who put people on the burn people at the stake. We were purging the, the. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Puritans were purging evil at the witch trials.
3: So were the Jews who put Christ on the
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: And so as organization grows, so we have a wonderful family here that grows and expands and and all the rest. Let's just take this out ex, exponentially. So now suddenly you have common reason that is you know several hundred thousand people globally with multiple small communities. You know how when, years ago, in one of the SAP schools, uh, you would had someone come up, shake your hand, that was a beautiful message, thank you so much, and then later you heard them shaking the hand of another one. The person who spoke who had a completely different message that was the authoritarian system, and they said beautiful message, and that was one of the things that spurred on making clarity in mm-hmm. SAP school. What do you do then, organizationally, whenever you have church in wherever... That has grown up organically, that has the ministry, that, that has but their perspective and their what they are teaching is not congruent with what we've grown to know more about God's character and the way that He works. How organizational, then is that addressed?
0: So my view is really biblical. My view and the view of our board and the view of our organization is we present the truth in love, we leave people free. We're not, if so, some other group, some other part of the country or the world decides to get together and they love our message, but then they decide to uh, you know bring in chicken sacrifices each week to church okay <laughs> we're not going to try to go over to them and try to tell them how they should do their business we would if they asked us to question about it we would present the reasons why we don't think that's a healthy direction to go but at the end of the day every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind and we would never use authoritarian measures to try and threaten or coerce or dictate what they do things we would only present truth and love leave people free
1: and still be able to use the common reason we are common reason ministry, and, and so if someone goes there and experiences that, that's the impression they have of common reason.
0: So the common reason label is being used by lots of people that we've never authorized. It's already being done. People put it up all over the place. We never tell them. They don't check with us. Um, when when. When the disciples came to Christ and said, there are people preaching in your name that haven't been part of our group and they're using the name of Christ and they haven't been, we tried to silence them. What did Christ say? Leave them alone. alone. We leave them alone. When Paul said, hey, these people are preaching Christ for profit and for gain. Did he try to silence them? He said, even so, at least the name of Christ is being preached. You see, I get where you're going, but the motive that drives your concern is fear, not love. Fear of what's going to happen to our good name. Fear of what people are going to think of us. Fear of what's going to happen to our organization. Fear-driven motives lead to authority and control. Love-driven motives are truth, presented in love, leaving people free, and in the end it will come out. Hey, these people are saying this, and you're, okay, but that's not what we teach. Here's our official site. Here's what we teach. We can't control what the rest of the world does, and we don't try to.
1: It's actually something different. It's love for people in the other community and wanting to make sure that they are getting truth and that they are being able to. But that,
0: but that has nothing to do with them using our name or not. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That, that has nothing to do with them using our name. Love for them doesn't have anything to do with whether they're using our name and presenting it the way we would. Using our name has to do with our name. Salvation
2: is not in the name of It's in the name of Jesus. It's- I've never seen seven in
0: the So, what do we think the greatest pagan infection in Christianity is? Now, I've gone through a bunch, but what's the number one pagan infection in Christianity that's accepted as tradition and almost never questioned? God's law functions like human law, a system of imposed rules that requires the ruling authority to police breaches in the rules, keep track of bad deeds, and then punish rule breakers. That idea is pagan. It's a lie, and it's accepted in every denomination of the world, and it corrupts Christianity, and God's end-time remnant people are specifically called to give a message that calls people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. In other words, designer worship, understanding his law, is the law upon which reality is built, and deviations from those laws are inconsistent with life and result in ruin and death unless... The healer, designer, builder restores us back to harmony, which requires our trust in him. And we don't trust somebody who is the source of inflicted pain and from whom we need to be protected. And so this imperialistic view of God is absolutely part of the wine of Babylon. It's part of what's infecting the church. It's part of what's prevented the gospel from going to the world. It's part of what has delayed the second coming of Christ. And he's waiting for a people to reject this view of God and start presenting that God. Who is our designer, creator, and the lover of our souls? Who wants to heal us? Wendell.
3: This discussion of how structure develops and whatnot was a central portion of the early St. believers before they became a church, and the reluctance because of the natural um, direction that organizational structures take.
0: Right, exactly. That's what I was saying earlier. We were purposely designed to try to to have local control and local authority to prevent a centralization and becoming a a, a papacy. And we've moved very much in that direction organizationally. We are very authoritarian now. So uh, I think I'll jump down. I'm going to jump because there's a quote that I think plays into here right now. Um... Yes, yeah, so I'm going to jump into Tuesday's lesson. We'll come back to, to Sunday and Monday. But jump into Tuesday's lesson about authority. When the Jews asked Peter at Pentecost, with what authority, or when he's preaching in the temple, with what authority are you preaching, what kind of authority were the Jews asking about? When they said, with what authority are you in this? What were they meaning when they used the word authority? Aren't they asking about what office uh, who was appointed you? What position? What title? Uh, wasn't they, weren't they asking in this type of a way? Is this the type of authority God wants us to recognize? The authority of office, of position, of title. For instance, when Martin Luther raised his questions, how did the church authorities respond? Did all parties come together and agree that at the end of the day, We should rest our conclusions on the weight of evidence and truth. Truth and evidence should be our authority. Is that what all parties agreed to? Mm -hmm. Or did the church tend toward the authority of committee and council and position and tradition? And earthly What about today? When we raise questions... In our organizations, do church leaders typically respond by pursuing the authority of truth and evidence, or by holding to the authority of their position, their office, and their traditions? It's what
1: they did with Christ himself when he spoke in the temple, and they were astounded that he spoke with such authority when he hadn't been to their
0: school. You can see this played out in 2015 at the GC on the ordination of women question. There were two groups. You can see the two groups. There was a group clearly interested in following evidence and truth. And there's a group clearly interested in authority of office and tradition. And that, that group won out. When we talk about the Bible as our authority, do we believe the Bible is our authority? Is it authority? What do we mean by that? Is, is the Bible our authority like the Major League Baseball rulebook is the authority for Major League Baseball? Is that how the Bible is our authority? Yeah. In baseball, what makes the rule book authoritative? Or what makes what's in the rule book authoritative? Isn't it the rules themselves?
3: It wouldn't be baseball. It
0: It wouldn't be baseball without it. Is this how the Bible works? If a directive is in the Bible, it has authority because it's in the Bible. Is Is that how it works? Or is it in the Bible because it already has authority? Is the Bible merely a code book? Or is it a book of wisdom, of enlightenment, a book designed to teach us how reality actually works so that we will develop, as it said in Hebrews 5.14, the mature, will develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong? Is it it an educational book designed to lead us into how God has constructed his reality to work? Or is it simply a list of rules? Yes.
2: Some people misunderstand how the Bible is supposed to be our guideline, and it is. But they kind of go off on some tangent by saying things like, Christ is our perfect example of how to live our life in every single capacity.
0: So then we shouldn't get married.
2: Well, that's one. That means all men should have long hair, should wear dresses, and they can only be put in a tomb. They can't be cremated, they can't be buried, they can't be married, they can't have children. So um, there's, if it's not in the Bible, then you shouldn't do it. So that means you can't have pathfinders. Um, it doesn't address... You can't
0: have musical instruments in the church.
2: There you go. So, so on the one hand, it's, it's it's a guidelines of principles, but it doesn't get into the little picky units because it doesn't address every single aspect.
3: Tuesday's lesson also implied, or not implied, but kind of more or less stated in the middle portion, that it was God's authority then. You know, so it's no longer someone else's lesser authority. It's God's, and he's a super authority, and so you need to abide him because he is the super authority. He wrote the rule book. There you go. He issues the fines for violations. So when you read the scripture,
0: are you free to question the scripture? I will tell you, there's this. So our view, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. God is connected reasoning with him and cleansing from sin. So our view is that when you read the scripture, you have to engage your reasoning power to comprehend and understand it. Every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. It says in uh, Romans uh, fourteen five. However, the critics of our class, and this, and there's, they're fa- fairly vocal at times, and they've gone on record in various public places in writing. One of the things they attack about this class is that Dr. Jennings tells people to reason.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and we shouldn't reason. We are not to reason. We are to take the Bible as it reads. And when you try to reason out the Bible, then you're elevating your human reason above the divine revelation of God, and you are putting yourself above the Bible, and you're diminishing the authority of the Bible. This is their view.
2: That's right.
1: Yes. The Bible is a beautiful invitation to grow into a relationship with a dynamic, all-knowing, all-powerful being that wants to be your best heart's friend. Yes,
0: and if you're going to do that, you have to listen to what He says and stop thinking about it.
1: Best experience communication and honesty. So.
0: Yes, you can communicate with him, but at the end of the day, when the Bible says it, you've got to believe it and do it, or else you're being rebellious, you rebellious person, you. Yes.
2: <laughs> <Thank>
0: you. <laughs> no, seriously, this is what we hear sometimes, that we aren't to reason, we aren't to think, and that we get criticized because we reason out the scriptures, comparing scripture to scripture, and harmonizing scripture with... Science and experience. Design, law, science experience, and experience, uh, science and experience, exactly right. So this is out of... Um, a uh, message to young people, page 258, a short quote, and then we'll get a couple more interesting ones. Young men should search the scripture for themselves. They are not to feel that it is sufficient for those older in experience to find out the truth that the younger ones can accept it from them as authority. No, no, we're not supposed to believe that somebody studied beforehand should tell us what the Bible says. We need to study that for ourselves. Um, this is out of uh, Testimonies to Ministers, page 1 we must study the truth for ourselves. No man should be relied upon to think for us. By the way, how many times have I said in here, I'm not here to think for you. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here just to stimulate you to think, but you have to reason out for yourself. So no man should be relied upon to think for us. No matter who he is, or in what position he may be placed. We are not to look upon any man as a criterion for us. We are to counsel together, to be subject one to another, but at the same time we are to exercise the ability God has given us in order to learn what is truth. Each one of us must look to God for divine enlightenment. And then this last one is out of um, Review and Herald, August 7, 1894. Satan... Is constantly endeavoring to attract attention to man in the place of God. He, referring to? Satan, leads the people to look to the bishops, the pastors, the professors of theology as their guides instead of searching the scripture to learn their duty for themselves. The people of God have educated themselves in such a way that they have come to look to those in position of trust as guardians of truth and have placed men where God should be. When perplexities have come upon them, instead of seeking God, they have gone to human sources for help and have received only such help as man can give. Now prepare yourself. Hold on. Fasten your seatbelts. The president of the conference is not to do the thinking for all the people. He is not an immortal brain, but has capabilities and powers like any other man. When men place the president of the conference in place of God, they are doing that which is exactly opposite to what Christ has told them to do.
1: And you can put any other person in the world in that. Space. Yes.
0: Yeah. your, your, your uh, Sabbath school teacher your pastor your school teacher your spouse exactly right every person has been given their own individuality their own identity their own ability to think and to reason and it is your responsibility to develop and exercise that and come to know the truth for yourself every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind
2: and Jesus when he did talk about leadership he talked about service his type of leadership was not our type of leadership in the John 13, it talks when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet. He said, you don't understand it now, but you'll understand it later. And no, no person, no servant is above their master, and yet I, as your master, have washed your feet. Go and do like that. And so if our leaders were truly like servants, it would be a whole different... So
0: what kind of law was Christ demonstrating? Love. The law of love. Not the law of dictatorial authority. That's right. So do we as Seventh-day Adventists believe the Bible is authoritative? Yes, yes we do. Yeah. Or do we only believe those portions that we can find an Ellen White quote to support? <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> those are more no, you laugh at that. I will tell you.
2: Yeah.
0: There are many that function that way in the organization. They cannot believe something they study in Scripture unless they can find an Ellen White quote that agrees with it.
2: Yes? Again, this is personal experience. Five years ago, I thought I was a Seventh-day Adventist. Before that, I was a Baptist. Before that, I was a heathen. Today, I'm just a Christian. I can't take the name of Seven Seventh-day Adventist. Not with the personal things that's been done by Seventh-day Adventist. I had a preacher again to him. The Bible has to line up with what John G. White
0: said. Well, I wish I had that quote from Wesley. And a couple brilliant quotes along these lines about what is it that makes a Methodist? And, it, and he describes what is it that makes a Methodist? And it is primitive Christian love and service. And he said, but isn't that just the basics for any Christian? He goes, that's right. That's exactly right. That's what a Methodist is, a basic Christian who looks like Christ in character and practices the principles of Christ. That's what he said. And then he had his dream. Remember the dream? And he is at the gates of heaven, and he says to the uh, angel at the gates of heaven, "Um, are there any Baptists here? Oh, no, there's no Baptists here. Are there any Congregationalists here? No, no, no Congregationalists. Any um, Anglicans here? Oh, no, not a one. And then he got very frightened. and said, "Are are there any Methodists here? Nope, not a one. The only people here are Christians, those who love Christ. And then he was at the gates of hell and he talked to the demon there and he said, are there any Baptists here? Oh yeah, we got plenty of those. <laughs> any Yes, Yeah, it's filled with the, filled, filled up. Any, any, any Methodists? Oh yeah, tons of Methodists uh, here. But nobody here loves Jesus. It's a profound quote. So I don't have a problem with what you said at all. We are not saved by organizational loyalties or affiliations. We are saved by becoming like Christ and loving him. However, when we become like Christ and love him, then what we were talking about earlier, we can come together and be part of organizations for common purpose, for common mission, sharing a vision of where the Holy Spirit is calling us, whether it's a vision to work in, in prisons, whether it's a vision to work in, in foreign missions, whether it's a vision to spend, send a certain picture of God to the world. We come together organizationally because we can do so much more as a community than we can do as an individual, so there's place for organizations, but we're not saved by organizations. So I'm not undermining the benefit of organizations. Don't suggest I'm thinking we should throw away church organizations. I'm not. I'm saying you should throw away your spiritual security, throw away the connection between your spiritual eternal security in heaven with membership in an organization. They should not be linked. What should be linked is, is the Holy Spirit called me to this organization where I can fulfill His calling and most effectively in my life. That's the, the question. And does this organization, you know, maybe, maybe I'm to be a witness in the organization. Maybe the organization, instead of a dark county, is a dark organization, and you're the light in that organization. Right? So, you know, I don't, I don't tell people where they should affiliate. I think the Holy Spirit wants people that know God and know the true message in every denominational organization. He wants his agents there spreading the word. And In fact, Jesus taught that the wheat and tares grow up together until the harvest. And God has his true people in every organization. So I wish we had time to go into some more of the interesting things in the lesson. Um, I guess you'll have to just check out the rest of the notes. We've, we've run out of time today. And thank you for your input and participation Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God of love and who really is all about healing, restoring us back into unity with you. Come into our hearts now with your spirit. Uh, Find the broken pieces and the parts that need to be left behind and and reorganize our character to be built in, in the symmetry and beauty of Jesus Christ. And then bring us together as a body of believers that we can work together effectively to fulfill your end time mission of taking a message about you to the world that will lighten the world, set hearts and minds free and that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.